Hello, and welcome to the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Silo. And today, we take on the iconic film. The film everyone's talking about. The film everyone's seeing. The film that's made one billion dollars in two weeks. Of course, I'm talking about Barbie. Yes, we're here to talk Barbie because I'm a fan of going to the movies, as you know, if you listen to the podcast. And I'm going to get into what I thought of Barbie, just in my own personal opinion, which doesn't matter. I want to talk a little bit about something I'm interested in, which is the the marketing and the commercial aspect of Barbie, because I find that fascinating. And I find that that goes hand in hand with the stuff that I'm interested in terms of film going and this moment we're living in where going to the movies is such a challenged business. So regardless of what I personally think from going to see Barbie as a film, it is something to be celebrated because it's getting people to go to the movies to the tune of $1 billion in 14 days, which is an incredible accomplishment. And it's not too much of a stretch to say that today, Margot Robbie is the most powerful producer in Hollywood. Greta Gerwig is the most powerful director in Hollywood. Greta Gerwig and her husband, Noah Baumbach, are the two most powerful screenwriters in Hollywood. On and on and on. Warner Brothers has a much-needed shot in the arm, which is going to probably single-handedly save their fiscal year when these numbers hit their balance sheet and it's reported. So anyway, there's a lot of fascinating things to talk about and unpeel in a 45-minute episode here about Barbie. Now, I played the 2001 theme because... Barbie, as a piece of film marketing, had me at the release of the 2001 parody trailer. I thought this was one of the most brilliant and most effective teasers that I've ever seen. Because it planted a flag. It had cinematic credibility because the spot-on parody shots of 2001 were so well done. And as an obvious... 2001 freak myself, that is the first thing that I noticed was how well done the parody was. These shots showed cinematic flair and attention to detail and the ultimate homage to the film itself. And then the reveal of the giant Barbie instead of the monolith they showed that the filmmakers and their corporate masters, because that has to be part of the equation here, were aware of exactly how 
to savvily market something like this film. The juxtaposition of these two things, 2001, the most heady, cerebral, thinking person's movie of all time, and Barbie, the most commercialized, marketing, exercise, masquerading as a movie of all time. Conflated Together is the most genius strike at what this would end up being. And I thought that awareness of how to plant a flag and say that this is going to be something unexpected, uh, challenging, all of these things that really the film does for Mattel, <laughs> which we'll get into. And ironically, and I don't know if the marketing of this film was so genius as to anticipate or perhaps even create the Barbenheimer phenomenon, which if you're not, if you've been living under a rock for the last two weeks, is again, this juxtaposition of on the one hand, a film Oppenheimer, which is presumably a heady thinking person's naughty film about moral certitude and questioning human scientific accomplishment writ large on the greatest canvas that ever could live and die in terms of the creation of the most terrifying weapon ever invented and the use of it and the story of it paired with, just like in the 2001 trailer, Barbie. Life in plastic. It's fantastic. Now, I don't know if the 2001 trailer knew that that was going to be a thing, that Barbenheimer was going to be a thing. But again, these things went hand in hand. And let's be clear. The biggest success of Barbie is as an exercise in that least sexy aspect of the film business, marketing. Quick, name five great marketing executives in, in the history of Hollywood. You can't do it, and if you can, it's because you are a film marketing executive. <laughs> I mean, most people might be able to name a producer or two. Most people can name a handful of directors. I'm talking just regular cinema-going people, not people like me or you listening to this podcast. But even we can't list any film marketing executives. And I think that's because the gig is the better job you do marketing, the farther back in the rearview mirror you yourself are. The farther back in the rearview mirror it is that there was even such a thing as a marketing campaign executed by hundreds or thousands of people at the cost of hundreds of millions of dollars in order to introduce the idea of a film to the general public all over the world in such a manner as to create a set of expectations and vibes and ideas about what this is going to be. That's all coordinated behind the scenes in such a manner as to ideally be invisible. But it's, of course, fascinating to me to peek behind that curtain, and it doesn't take much. You can Google a few different things and find a lot of information about the conception and the origin and the marketing and the release strategy and all this stuff, which I'm not going to get too in the weeds on, but 
want to talk about it. So this episode's not a review per se, but it's, it's a synopsis of things that I find personally interesting about the film. Uh, it's incredible box office performance is one. It's successes and shortcomings, quote unquote, as a movie is another. It's frequently muddled politics is also fascinating. And the intrinsic relationship to the commerce of selling Barbie dolls and the commerce of movies based on products and this movement, sorry, this moment that we're living in where these types of corporate synergies have really become mastered by these massive conglomerate companies and film studios, companies like Mattel, to the point where the line between what's just corporate shilling and lauded artistic think piece of feminist master statement, the line between those things is not only blurred, but very willfully obfuscated by all the parties involved and most of a willing media who get in line. And again, this is not at all to hate on Barbie because first and foremost, as I said, I'm a fan of film going and any film that puts butts in the seats is something I support and applaud. So I want to start with the experience of going to Barbie because that's really the only important thing. It doesn't matter what I thought about Barbie, but I probably didn't dislike it as much as you might think I would. But that doesn't even matter. I wanted to just start this by just talking about the experience I had of going to Barbie because I felt it was very pure in terms of what this film seems to mean and the moment it seems to have caught. Now, I happened to see Barbie in a uh, theater here in Massachusetts on the occasion of my daughter's 12th birthday weekend when she had four friends staying over at the house for a birthday sleepover weekend. And my wife and I and my sister-in-law took five 12-year-old girls to see Barbie. And (laughs) the girls didn't dress up per se. Uh, A lot of people did at the theater of all different ages. But I kind of thought, I didn't know if these girls were going to really put on, you know, their makeup and hairstyles and pick their outfits. No, they, they dressed comfortably. They dressed sort of not slouchily, but they didn't really put on the Ritz in terms of their dress for the movie. But unexpectedly, they dug out my daughter's old Barbies and they each had a Barbie with them. Now, generally, they seem to be doing this ironically, but I would kind of put it in air quotes because I'm not it's hard at age 12. If you have children this age, you know what I'm talking about, or girls this age particularly. There's a lot of behavior that's done kind of winkingly, ironically, but not really. They're also still kind of little children and little kids who are attached to this thing that this other part of them, this emerging teenage part, is kind of aware that they are supposed to, in air quotes, be embarrassed by now that they're all of 12 and nearly nearly 13. So they all had a Barbie, which they held in their hands for the entirety of the time that we drove to the movie, waited in line for the movie, got the concessions, took our seats, watched the film, and drove all the way home. Now, some of these Barbies were made into weird Barbies, which is one of the parts of the film I think most people love, and I certainly appreciated. 
Kate McKinnon's performance as Weird Barbie, the Barbie whose face you drew on, whose hair you chopped off, who you dressed in weird clothes, whose legs and limbs you bent in weird directions. That's a great aspect of the film that's done particularly well. Most of these Barbies were treated that way. Uh, one, one girl brought Ken, put him in a dress and wrapped him in tape with a boot taped to his forehead. And as we drove to the theater, we were driving through town and we were in a uh, open-topped Jeep Wrangler. And as we would drive past people walking on the streets, the girls would stick the dolls out of the car windows and yell, Barbie, and wave them. And again, they were doing this sort of pseudo-ironically, but also not really. And the re they started getting amazing reactions. And then I think they kind of dropped the irony and they sort of embraced this moment because people were cheering and applauding and unexpectedly, a like 12 or 13 year old boy sitting with his family, like leaped up and he was like so excited that they were going to Barbie. He's like, are you guys going right now? And they were like, yay. And he was like, great. <laughs> and people were clapping and taking their pictures and it's a thing. It was a moment. And in the theater, people are dressed in pink. There are multi-generational families, all kinds of people. It was a moment. And, you know, going to the movies doesn't have a lot of moments like that. And so the success of getting a billion dollars worth of people around the world to go to a movie over two weeks is incredible. And regardless of the content of the film, I'm going to say, that's a good thing for the business of the movies. Movies need more films like this. And pointedly, movies need more films that aren't just Marvel comic book movies. You may love those. I personally don't. Doesn't really matter. And while this is still a fairly crass commercial corporate exercise at the end of the day, regardless of all the think pieces you will encounter about Barbie, it's a good thing for the film business that it's another lane that is developed. Now, what they drive down that lane, we'll talk about a little bit later on in the episode. And what this means, I'm not sure. But these are people that it's interesting to be in these positions of making these types of films. I will say that. What they do with it, what others that come in their wake do with it, that's where the rubber really will meet the road, or the plastic, I should say. So ironically, if you listen to last week's episode, it was me and my guest, Ernest Lupinacci, talking about the Godfather films. Well, I had taped that and I had edited it, but it hadn't yet come out when I went and saw Barbie with the five 12-year-olds. And I'm sitting there in Barbie, and if you've seen the film, towards the end, there's a brilliant moment where Issa Rae, who is the president of the United States as it exists in Barbie, Barbie land has a brilliant little joking sequence about, <laughs> you know, they're trying to trick the Kens into submission and doing and, and, and fighting each other so that uh, they forget to vote on changing the constitution so that the Kens can maintain control, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, the joke is uh, Issa Rae approaches one of the Kens and sort of asks in a funny way about, Oh, are you watching The Godfather? She pronounces it sort of funnily, like Godfather, Godfather. 
Uh, could you could you restart the movie and talk over it? It's <laughs> something like that. It's brilliant. And I thought, oh shit, I've just now set myself up to be the punchline of a joke I didn't even see coming. So that was what I think we saw it on a Friday night and I put my episode on a Tuesday. I didn't have time to go into it and kind of change it. Anyway, uh, the reaction in the cinema I thought was kind of fascinating. It was not, this was a very large grouping. I mean, it's probably, I don't know how many seats are in this theater. It's probably close to a thousand, I want to say. I don't know, 500, 700. It was a lot. It's a big theater. But I got to say the reaction was pretty muted to the film. In a weird way, the phenomena of the film doesn't seem to really require that you're blown away by the film itself. <laughs> now, that's an interesting subplot here, which I'm sure it's different depending on where you saw the film. Maybe people broke out into applause and cheers. Maybe people cried at the large speeches about mothering and being a woman. But I was listening for the reaction. And the first thing was, there were very few LOL moments in the theater. People did not laugh out loud a lot. And there were moments I think they were supposed to. There are lines in the screenplay that are supposed to get big laughs, but they really didn't in the theater, which I thought was interesting. Now, the review of the five 12-year-old focus group uh, was surprising and probably not scientific, but here, I'll give you the headlines. Uh, they loved it. They weren't raucous during the movie itself. They kind of sat transfixed and sort of wrapped, raptly fixated on the screen. I was sitting behind all of the 12-year-olds, so I was watching them. The only time they kind of twittered to each other was during some of the very final emotional mom-daughter heart-wringing scenes uh, and the Barbie sort of death of a doll scene. That's when they kind of couldn't handle the emotion, I think. I recognized these these symptoms when you're 12 years old and you can't handle sort of this swelling of emotion that you don't really understand. And so you'd sort of just laugh and talk to your friends. That's the only kind of time they really were rowdy or, or seemed uh, uncertain of how to respond to things. But they, they, they loved it. When I said afterwards, what did you guys think? Of the movie? We loved it. We loved it. We loved it. What's your favorite character? I didn't see this coming. You know who their favorite character was? Alan. <laughs> the Michael Sarah character, who I have to say was great. More Alan. Alan's spinoff should be the next film. Uh, more Alan seemed to be one of the things the 12-year-olds felt strongly about. One of the other fascinating things about this 12-year-old focus group, they didn't like Ken. Now, I should, I should clarify because obviously for half the movie, I guess you're kind of not supposed to like Ken when, when patriarchy Ken takes over. However, that's the only Ken the 12-year-old girls liked. They liked bad Ken. You know, and everyone did. Everyone does. I mean, because Ryan Gosling with the Metallica fanny pack Ken, but it spells Ken in the Metallica logo, the furred coat, like... That Ken is so hilarious. That Ken comes alive on screen. Milk Toast Beach Ken, regular Ken, is a drip. And the girls were not interested in him at all. They did not like him. They didn't, they didn't think he was funny. They hated good Ken, in quotes. 
which I thought was fascinating. And of course, such a stereotype. Not the not that he's a bad boy when he's sort of patriarchy Ken, but you know, it's one of those areas where the politics of the film gets a bit muddled because of the simple realities of screenwriting and character. Like it's so much more fun as an actor to play the bad guy than it is to play the good guy. And Ryan Gosling is clearly having a hell of a lot of fun playing patriarchy Ken, and he gets much better lines as patriarchy Ken. He gets much better stuff to do on screen. And so it's a little bit <laughs> contrary to what the film purports to be about to have Ken only really come alive when he's becoming something the film then says must be snuffed out and does snuff out. It neutralizes Ken back to beach Ken. I mean, I guess he's changed so, so supposedly by the end, but not really. So I thought that was kind of fascinating. Um, I actually would have liked to have seen the script make more of more kind of oddball Barbie products over the years. You know, the credit sequence at the end is very well done because it shows you a lot of the original marketing materials for some of the crazy characters that you see. And I really, I thought that was too little too late. Like some of that stuff would have been really fun to work into the narrative of the screenplay. And there's plenty of time spent in Mattel headquarters with Will Ferrell repeating for the umpteenth time his man baby routine, which did not get any laughs in the theater I was in. Uh, that was disappointing to me. I thought he was representative of a number of cameos in the film or even roles in the film that were really underutilized by the screenplay and by the filmmakers and by the film itself. Will Ferrell's definitely one of them. He's just retreading something you've seen Will Ferrell do a thousand times. Didn't get any laughs in the theater I was in, which was opening weekend again. Um, and I thought some of this other stuff that they saved for the end, like showing you the, the reality of Midge and the marketing products around Midge, who is the pregnant doll friend of Barbie whose stomach you could open and had a magnetic baby. Uh, sugars, sugar daddy Ken, sugars daddy Ken. That was brilliant in the marketing examples and the subsequent stuff that I've learned about that, but they didn't really get into that. And Rob Brydon, I mean, hey, again, here's another Matt. How do you have Rob Brydon in your film, your comedy film, and you don't have numerous hilarious scenes with Rob Brydon as Sugar Daddy Ken. Instead, it's a one-off. He has like one scene. Um, I thought Issa Rae was a lost opportunity. I thought a lot of this, I thought a lot of the supporting cast was really not utilized as well as it could have been. And I thought that the speechifying at the end of the film was something I'm just generally not a fan of ever in a movie. It's why I really am not an Aaron Sorkin fan. There are certain writers who use big speeches to, to me, overly hammer a nail that, 
you know, the filmmaking should do, the characterization, the plot of the movie should do these things without the need for these on-the-nose speeches about, in quotes, all caps, what the movie is about. It's akin to something I've talked about on the podcast before, which is when directors use the emotion of existing songs to kind of mask flaws in their films, writing and execution. For example, Harold and Maude, a film I'm sure you love because any self-respecting cinast has to love Harold and Maude. But when we looked at Harold and Maude for the pod, I made the point to my guest Becca that I thought in retrospect, Hal Ashby's kind of relying almost solely on those brilliant Cat Stevens songs. For the emotion of the film, everything you think you remember about Harold and Maude is not actually contained in the scenes between Harold and Maude. It's contained in the montage scenes set to those brilliant Cat Stevens songs. The Cat Stevens songs have the emotion, not the filmmaking, not the performance. As wonderful as so many elements of that film are. Okay, so... I thought there were some missed opportunities. Here's one of the biggest missed opportunities in the film. And apparently in my ability to cue up this song effectively. Let me start that again. Here's one of the greatest missed opportunities in the Hi, film. Bobby. Hi, Ken. You wanna go for a ride? Sure, Ken. Jump in. Okay, now this is, you know, we can say this is one of the most this is one of the stupidest songs ever recorded. Not only is the content fairly reprehensible, and sexualized. But it's just so lowbrow and I mean, it's however this is the most famous song about Barbie that ever has been done. <laughs> now, at first, when I heard that this song wasn't in this form in the film, it is sort of a distant sample in the, in the more contemporary, uh, you know, song with Ice Spice and... Uh, I don't know, Cardi B and, and everybody who's, again, the clout chasing aspect of the soundtrack and the use of the songs by the film's marketing department puts forth. This is sampled somewhat in the background there. Now, when I first heard that it wasn't in the movie, I thought I, I hadn't kind of listened to this song, thankfully, since 1997. And so I'd forgotten kind of how insipid and moronic the lyrics are how infantilizing to Barbie it is, how sexualizing to Barbie it is. Then when I sort of listened to it, I thought like, oh yeah, of course. Like, of course they can't use that in Barbie. However, 
You totally could. The missed opportunity is once Ken discovers that there's such a thing as the patriarchy in quotes, this should be the song that Ken blasts through Barbie land when the Kens take over. This should be their idea of a great song because it really encapsulates everything the Kens are advocating for at that moment in the film. We, we actually have in the film this kind of forced moment, I thought. It's very funny. I mean, one of the biggest laughs in the film, amongst the parents in the theater, not the kids, because they had no idea, but when Ken sings Matchbox 20's Push, uh, that was extremely funny. But it's a bit forced. I'm going to play this a little bit. It's a bit forced in the film because is this a is this a typically male macho you know it's I, I don't think of Matchbox 20 as you know a toxic masculine band Now, it's a hilarious moment in the film when they use this. Don't get me wrong. But I'm going to say it's a little forced because it's, I guess, a song they could get because Rob Thomas realized it's not a bad thing for a billion people plus and counting to associate your song with an iconic moment in the film, which is what's going to happen as a result of its presence in the movie. But I don't know what happened with Aqua. I know that there was a lawsuit, <laughs> actually, uh, which I did not know until I sort of researched this. But apparently, uh, I wanted to get this up because it was kind of funny. Uh, on the Genius uh, lyrics page, it says, quote, due to its explicit removal of innocence, is a great expression from the children's toys of the same name. The song's existence ultimately resulted in a lawsuit. Mattel versus MCA records. This lawsuit insisted that the group and their record label deliberately violated the Mattel trademark and turned Barbie into a sex object. The judge that finally dismissed the lawsuit ended the ruling by literally advising the parties, quote, to chill, end quote. Barbie Girl received recognition at the Danish Music Awards of 1998 for Danish Hit of the Year. It dominated the music charts worldwide when it was released, and it remains as the group's biggest hit single in the U.S. to date. The music video received substantial airplay through MTV. It was directed by Peter Peterson and Peter Steinbeck. The video is just a slice of cheese that cannot be believed. You should check it out. So... Maybe because of this lawsuit, I don't know, the lawsuit was dismissed. Uh, I'm not sure that Aqua has some kind of musical credibility that they stood upon and refused to be crassly commercialized by okaying the use of their song as a punchline, their song which is already a punchline, as a punchline in a movie. But that would have been a great opportunity to use the song that everyone associates with Barbie for better or for worse. Now, what's fascinating is 
that's kind of exactly what the marketing department and what Mattel is trying to pivot around in undertaking this whole venture to begin with. The whole thing exists simply to reposition Barbie in the marketplace. And I would say, as far as that's concerned, it is mission accomplished. And the way that they did that was by brilliantly using credibility of other people to shroud the shortcomings of Barbie and her unattainable, unrealistic beauty standards in the credibility of pretty independent-minded film people in Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach, but also in the politics of the moment and in the unquestioned way in which that embrace is packaged and presented to all of us as a public theater-going populace, that's the goal of the movie. That's the goal of the undertaking. It is to say, how the hell do we make Barbie relevant in 2023? How do we surmount the baggage that Barbie represents? Well, the way that you do that is to make a self-aware film that acknowledges all of the history, all of the baggage, all of the shortcomings, and yet also sort of positions Barbie as a hero, a feminist hero of the moment, of the day, extremely topical. And in doing so, you can then sell a shit ton more Barbies going forward than you would have otherwise. That is exactly the only reason this is happening as a movie, okay? As a project between Mattel on the one hand and Warner Brothers on the other. So to acknowledge the business of Barbie is to understand where this comes from and what it's trying to do. Now, a cynic, guilty as charged, would look at this situation and say, it's kind of gross to clothe this crass commercialization in something that actually is super important to humanity and to women and to mothers and daughters and all of the different types of people that the film tries to address and include. A cynic would look at that and say, uh, ew, <laughs> you know, like, how dare you? How dare you, Mattel, try to pretend that Barbie is a feminist hero and icon. Oh, far be it for me to be that cynic. But that's what they're doing. It's a reboot of Barbie. And the screenplay tries to sort of have it all ways. It tries to acknowledge the origins of Barbie. It plays for supposed laughs, although the line did not land pointedly at the screening I was at. When America Ferrara is introduced and her daughter, her angry teenage daughter, who's angry at the mother for reasons we don't ever know or explain, 
Um, although I did kind of laugh because I read one piece, I read a think piece about the America Ferrara daughter relationship. And the author sort of made a big deal out of the fact that there was, she could not understand why, what was the reason the daughter was so angry towards the mother? I thought, oh, you've never lived in a home with a 12-year-old girl and her mother and just watched development happen. Uh, there is no reason sometimes, but... Um, and I forgot what my point was, but, you know, these, these repositionings of Barbie... Um, unquestioned are kind of at odds when we look at the business of Barbie. So let's take a look at the business of Barbie. Now, this, this is all happening because of things that began happening in 2018. You're seeing the fruits of a turnaround. And as far as I can tell, there are two people involved on the Mattel side of things that have the most to do with the fact that this has occurred successfully. They have succeeded. It has been repositioned. And in that, perhaps the, the characters and the IP and the doll can go forward and become this thing that they would like it to be. Perhaps that will happen. Perhaps Barbie will become a doll that generations of children play with in order to express their fundamental belief in the power and capability of women. Maybe the world that Barbie imagines, which is kind of strangely black or white, like we should talk a little bit about the world that Barbie posits because it's part of the, the place that its politics get a little muddled is the central conflict of the film is Barbie and the Barbies exist in Barbie land, which is great because it's all run by women, but then that's threatened when Barbie and Ken go into the real world and Ken discovers there's such a thing as the patriarchy and he brings it back to Barbie land, infects all the Kens with it, and the Kens momentarily take over and their uprising has to be quelled and they have to be put back into their place so that normal relations can resume in Barbie land. I guess that's the point of the film. That's the story that's told, certainly. Like, it's played as a triumph when the Kens are put down and the Barbies resume control of everything. It's kind of was weird to me. I was sort of like, isn't the message, shouldn't the message kind of be like that we should be working together instead of this kind of like separatist movement between Barbies and Kens? But that's not really the message of the film. And the film in the end is only ultimately concerned with Barbie's liberation herself because she's the point of the movie. It's called Barbie. And the thing that did get a huge laugh in the cinema is the very, the very last line of the film where Barbie goes to a specific appointment, which I won't ruin if you haven't seen it. But if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. And I guess it's only Barbie who has changed. Like, I don't know what happens to the other characters that we've supposedly come to know and love in Barbie, in the Barbie land. Uh, but Barbie herself decides not to be a doll and enter the real world. So anyway, this all begins in, 20, in 2018 when a guy named Inan Kreese 
becomes CEO of Mattel. And Anand Kreese has this incredible resume of working at various entertainment conglomerates and rising through these ranks. He's an Israeli businessman. He became chairman of the board in May of 2018. As of 2021, under his leadership, I'm quoting here from Wikipedia, Mattel's net sales were up 19% and its operating income was up 95% versus the prior year. This is all before the Barbie movie came out. As a CEO, Kreese and Mattel set a bunch of goals related to environmental concerns, such as we're going to use 100% recyclable plastic materials in all our products and packaging. We're going to reduce packaging by 25%. We're going to maintain 100% pay equity globally. So smartly, he's positioned this company to represent these values that Barbie the movie will contain. And in that respect, you'd have to say he has put his money and Mattel's money where their mouths are. And one of the people that he brought aboard is a film marketing and executive named Robbie Brenner, who uh, is a film executive who has worked for many years at a variety of different um, film companies. And I think she is someone we'd have to say is primarily responsible for this moment occurring with Barbie and with this film. Because all the things that you might've read that, you know, oh, there was an Amy Schumer script. There was a Diablo Cody script. There was all that happened before these two people came aboard at Mattel. Okay. That was, that was previous regimes attempts at navigating. How are we going to monetize the IP of Mattel and create our own cinematic universe. Uh, those were previous examples. And it would have been really fascinating, I think, to see what Amy Schumer's take would have been on Barbie. Um, but anyway, Robbie Brenner is hired by Yanon Kreese, and her job is to start a film division. And I'm going to quote from a Vulture interview done with her by Matthew Jacobs, which came out July 20th, 2023. It's pretty, inf pretty informative about this marketing stuff, unintentionally so in places, but it's worth reading. So she says, um, I was hired by Mattel CEO Anon Kreese, who's an amazing thinker. And taking this job, one of the first things I talked about was that we wanted to start a film division that was not just about selling toys. It was going to be about telling great stories that have a reason to exist that are emblematic of these toys, but at the same time, unlock a very specific vision. She goes on to say, quote, any great piece of art, whether it's Hamilton on Broadway or Into the Spider-Verse or the Lego movie, has to feel like you've never seen it before. Certainly seeing Lady Bird and watching Cersei Ronan fall out of the car in the first five minutes, that's the kind of thing that makes you feel like you have to go see it. It feels honest. It feels real. That's the way we're trying to unlock all the IP at Mattel to lead with story first, lead with point of view. Now, okay, okay. However, 
there's still, and I'm going to use the term crass again, but that's just the ABCs of what we're talking about here. Our job is to sell more toys. If we make movies that don't seem like they are all about selling more toys, we should sell more toys. You know what I'm saying? That's the job. Now, um, <laughs> the, the interview is asking about uh, a surprise that occurred in 2001 where I guess Mattel released Barbie and the Nutcracker on VHS and DVD and it sold three and a half million units in less than a year. He asks, looking back, does it surprise you that a theatrical movie didn't happen sooner? Her answer, quote, no, it doesn't surprise me because I think everybody has a great relationship with Barbie. Everyone knows who Barbie is. There's such great expectations of what this movie should be, and I think to figure it out is so open-ended. I don't really know what that means. Everyone has a great relationship with Barbie. Actually, I think some of the more interesting writing about Barbie, the movie Barbie, is about the fact that many women do not have great relationships with Barbie. That's kind of the interesting stuff that's been written about is people resolving their conflicted feelings about Barbie as a kid, as a young woman, as a parent, as a mom. Uh... There's kind of a thing, and the movie is very acknowledging of all this too. It acknowledges it in kind of a self-flagellating way, but it acknowledges the fact that Barbie is complicated. Oh, the thing I couldn't remember before is that the scene with America Ferrara and her teenage daughter that's played for laughs is when she says, you fascist. She The teenage girl calls Barbie a fascist. I thought, wow, that's quite an accusation just to throw out for a for a laugh. And also, not just for a laugh. It's supposed to be self-aware. It's supposed to say, we get it. This part of Barbie that you're conflicted about, we get that too. But it didn't land. It certainly didn't land in the theater I was in. And you know another thing that didn't land, which a lot was made about, there's this scene where Barbie is in contemporary Los Angeles and she's sitting at a bus stop and the, I want to say she's the 91 year old costume designer of Barbie. She's a legend uh, in Hollywood and she, uh, who is, what's her name? Uh, it's not the costume designer of Barbie because that's Jacqueline Duran. Sees Barbie. Barbie bus stop lady. <laughs> I love the things when you put in there. Uh, okay, it's Anne Roth, who is a 91-year-old legendary costume designer in Hollywood. You know, you know the scene. Uh, Barbie goes to a is waiting in a bus stop, and she looks at a woman and says, You're beautiful. And the woman says, I know it. Now, Anne Roth is a historically important costume designer, but she is not an actor. And in that scene, which I guess I've, I've seen an article with Greta Gerwig talking about how the studio asked her to, to remove that scene when they were trying to cut the film down. They said, well, you could lose that. And Greta Gerwig said, no, no, that's what the whole movie is about. I can't lose that scene. I don't know. That to me overstates it a bit. It took me out of the movie because when you see a non-actor deliver an important line in a film, there's just something that you, you, 
you have to give actors the due that they are actors for a reason. And if you're not an actor, you don't really have business delivering lines in a film. And that moment just didn't work only because however wonderful and amazingly accomplished she is, 91-year-old Anne Roth is not an actor. So she can't deliver that line with anything like the moment in the film wants you to feel this swell of import and emotion. Uh, so that's another kind of false note that I thought happened in the film. So how this happened. Um, again, Robbie Brenner, tasked with starting this Mattel film division, she says, quote, we partnered with Lucky Chap, which is Margot Robbie's production company with her husband, Tom Ackerley, and the producer, Josie McNamara. We had conversations about what the movie should be and who we should talk to. Conversations went on for a while and we rolled around in different ideas. Margot had a relationship with Greta. She brought Greta up. We were all like, yeah, of course. I mean, that's the dream. So... She reached out to Greta, who said she wanted to write it with Noah Baumbach. At that point, Tom, Margot, and I met with Noah and Greta in New York. It was very relaxed. They talked loosely about ideas. We made a deal with Warner Brothers. They went off and wrote the script until it wound up in our inboxes, basically. So, and then the, the interviewer said, so it was Greta's idea to enlist Noah. Yeah, I think Margot approached Greta. I think Greta and Noah probably talked about it. Um, and so again, Margot Robbie, um, Smartly, I'm not, she's not taking a backseat to Greta Gerwig, but she is the producer of the film. And the reason, one of the reasons Greta Gerwig is the director of the film, but she's smartly, generously allowing the director and the film, film as a director's medium, she's allowing the director to be the the public face of the movie. You know, she's not bigfooting Greta Gerwig out of the way in order to say, this is mine. I did this. But going back to what I said, I believe that Margot Robbie is now the most powerful producer in Hollywood. You know, two-week billion-dollar grosses, those don't grow on trees, okay? Now, again, it sets a huge set of expectations and a huge amount of runway that is going to be fascinating to watch things happen. Other directors and other people that were considered at various times, as I mentioned, there was Diablo Cody, Amy Schumer, I think Anne Hathaway, but Robbie Brenner says in this Vulture interview that, you know, those were all previous iterations and we, they started clean, but I think they did talk with Patty Jenkins who uh, had directed Wonder Woman to huge success, although there's been a bit of a fizzle in subsequent iterations of that franchise. But at the time, I guess they talked with her. Uh, but that's how this kind of came about, right? And the, um, the, the smart thing that they're doing, as I said, is pairing IP like Barbie with independent minded cinematic professionals to give it credibility and to really put forth as it does an idiosyncratic version of Barbie that is not a corporatized version of Barbie other than the corporation and the very smart people heading up these departments within the corporation have set in motion a sequence of events that allow that to happen. That's the smart 
part of the corporate thinking. But make no mistake, the underlying goal of the corporate thinking is to sell more toys. Always has been, always will be. Sell more product. Now, some of the reactions to Barbie I thought were very on point. Like, again, making any movie that becomes such a thing that innumerable pieces are written about it in all types of publications, from wonky, synast publications to BuzzFeed, Newsweek, etc. Wherever you want to look, Time Magazine, New York Times, wherever you want to look, there's a lot of think pieces about this. And I thought, some of these were kind of interesting. I wanted to quote them. Uh, here's a piece by Peter Bradshaw. I think this is in The Guardian. It says, quote, This movie is perhaps a giant two-hour commercial for a product, although no, most, no more so than the Lego movie, yet Barbie doesn't go for the comedy jugular anywhere near as gleefully as that film. In interviews about Barbie, Greta Gerwig has referenced Milton and Powell and Pressburger, Judging from this, I would say the influences are Toy Story, Pinocchio, and Clueless. It's entertaining and amiable, but with a soft core pulling of punches, lightly ironized, celebrity nostal celebratory nostalgia for a toy that still exists right now. Uh, I thought that was pretty on point. Here's another good piece that was in Vulture that says, uh, we shouldn't have to grade Barbie on a curve says, quote, in one of the most critical reviews of the movie's approach to gender politics, Alison Wilmore writes that, quote, it's not a rebuke of corporatized feminism so much as an update, noting a streak of defensiveness to Barbie, as though it's trying to anticipate and acknowledge any critiques lodged against it before they're made. That is one of the most salient points about this film that I have yet read. Quote, a streak of defensiveness to Barbie as though it's trying to anticipate and acknowledge any critiques lodged against it before they're made. Very, very much at the center of the Barbie screenplay. Quote, to be a film fan these days is to be aware that franchises and cinematic universes and remakes and other adaptations of old IP have become black holes that swallow artists leaving you to desperately hope they might emerge with the rare project that even though it comes from constrictive confines, still feels like it was made by a purpose. Barbie definitely was. But the trouble with trying to sneak subversive ideas into a project so inherently compromised is that rather than get away with something, you might just create a new way for a brand to sell itself. Yes, very much agree with that. Willa Paskin in the New York Times, I think this is the profile of Gerwig. Instead of aiming for a product you might grade on a curve as, quote, relatively thoughtful for a Barbie movie, end quote, Gerwig devoted herself to threading a needle slimmer than the eyelashes painted on the doll's face. The movie is a celebration of Barbie and a subterranean apologia for Barbie. It is a giant corporate undertaking and a strange, funny personal project. It is a jubilant, mercilessly effective polymer and pink extravaganza whose guiding star turns out to be Gerwig's own sincerity. Things can be both and, Gerwig says. I'm doing the thing and subverting the thing. That's a very salient point, too. I completely agree with those takes. I think all of those are really on point and part of what's fascinating about the film. 
is it's a thing. You can't deny it's a thing. Now, we're living in a summer of corporate biopics, okay? We've had Haunted Mansion. There's Blackberry, which is actually the best film of the lot of these that I'm going to mention here. If you haven't seen Blackberry, it's a really good small film about the making of the Blackberry, the device that you may have loved at one time before you fell in love with your iPhone. Really good small movie. Um, Haunted Mansion, The Beanie Bubble, Air, the Ben Affleck movie, celebrating Nike and Air Jordan sneakers. The Flaming Hot Cheetos movie, which kind of <laughs> came out and had innumerable pieces written about how the story isn't even true as presented in the film, but it didn't really matter. Tetris has a movie. The Super Mario's Brother movie is one of the biggest hits of the year. Barbie, like we're in a moment. And Mattel is, I guess interestingly committed to doing other weird, <laughs> quote unquote, unexpected pairings. For example, press release put out in 2019. Mattel is developing a live action motion picture based on Barney with Academy Award nominee Daniel Kaluuya, star of Get Out, Black Panther. Quote, Working with Daniel Kaluuya will enable us to take a completely new approach to Barney that will surprise audiences and subvert expectations, said Robbie Brenner, Mattel Films, remember her? The project will speak to the nostalgia of the brand in a way that will resonate with adults while entertaining today's kids, said Daniel Kaluuya. Barney was a ubiquitous figure in many of our childhoods. Then he disappeared into the shadows, left misunderstood. We're excited to explore this compelling modern-day hero and see if his message of, I love you, you love me, can stand the test of time. <laughs> Barney, is a Barney is a dinosaur from our imagination, and we can't wait to get I love you, you love me stuck in heads everywhere yet again. I mean, okay. I'm, will I be interested to see what Daniel Kaluuya does with Barney? Sure. Live action Barney at that. Uh, that is apparently in the pipeline. Hot Wheels, I think there's already been Hot Wheels movies. I just saw an ad last night. There's a Hot Wheels TV series hosted by Jay Leno, which I guess is some type of car customization thing. There is apparently a movie about something called Polly Pocket, which I'd never heard of, which is going to be directed by Lena Dunham. I had to look up Polly Pocket. It's not a doll. Here's the history. Polly Pocket was first designed by Chris Wiggs in 1983 for his daughter, Kate. Using a makeup powder compact, he fashioned a small house for the tiny doll. Bluebird Toys of Swindon licensed the concept, and the first Polly Pocket toys appeared in 1989. Uh, they endured multiple hostile takeover tents, and Mattel finally purchased the brand and Bluebird Toys later that year. The original Polly Pocket toys were plastic cases that opened to form a dollhouse or other playset with Polly Pocket figurines less than an inch tall. The dolls folded in the middle like the case, et cetera, et cetera. I, I've never heard of this. Uh, I don't know if this is a thing. I don't know what interesting film Lena Dunham is going to make. Is it because she made Tiny Furniture? Now she's going to make Tiny Polly Pocket World? I, I have no idea. But again, this is part of the strategy. Tom Hanks is apparently attached to 
do something around a character named Major Matt Mason, who I also never heard of. This is a 1966 character based on the moon craze of the moment. And it's got a whole cinematic universe around the astronaut Matt Mason, Sergeant Storm, Doug Davis. It has an African-American astronaut, Jeff Long. It has a alien known as Captain Laser. It's got a whole thing. That sounds kind of interesting. Um, but this is what Marvel, Marvel is going to have. Marvel. Mattel. See? How's that for a faux pas? Mattel is going to have a cinematic universe that is going to be coming out soon to theaters near you. So it's a moment that we're in, and I guess we're in it. So what I think is going to be fascinating to see what happens next, like this launch has gone as well as you possibly could ever hope. The question is, what do you do next? I would hate to be the movie that comes out next in this Barbie verse, because what are you going to be compared to? Something that it's going to be impossible to live up to. So they're going to have to do something a little different, and they're going to have to figure out how to continue to do this Barbie film DNA thing, but I think with increased scrutiny as to what's really going on behind the curtain here, it's going to be more difficult to clothe themselves in the indie credibility of the artists that they enable to have a vision for their products when really the sales of the products will be part of the story. Because keep in mind, in the year or two that it will take for the next film to come out, you're going to be able to see what the bottom line was for Mattel as a result of the Barbie movie. And right now, all the think pieces are about the feminist approach of the film. But in a year or two, there's going to be equal coverage to what happened to the stock price, what happened to the revenue, what happened to the profit margins, et cetera, et cetera. And that's going to be part of the story, too. Right now, we're living in this warm pink afterglow of the success of Barbie. Uh, but there's many, many interesting subtexts and rivulets of stories that come out from the Barbie universe as is presented in this film. And that's a little bit of what I thought of when I saw Barbie. So just imagine what it will be like when I finally see Oppenheimer, which also exists to sell toy. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, that's all I've got for you for this week. I will be back soon with another episode of the Full Cast and Crew Podcast. Thank you as ever for your listening and your support.